You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Let's turn to uh, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6. I'm going to read uh, from verse 19 to verse 34. We'll just read it as we uh, go through it. Harvest Thanksgiving, I think, for many people... um, Well, I'm interested, actually, just out of of curiosity, how many people here grew up on a farm? Okay, there's a few. See, you can tell. (laughs) There's not many, not many growing up on a farm, okay? And I I think that we've lost a lot of the essence of Harvest Thanksgiving, because, like, food's just there, isn't it? We just think that. Food's just there, and, you know, you go out, you buy it, you get money, you, you buy food, and that's it. Um... Some people here may have experienced real and genuine hunger. I remember my mother-in-law telling me that in the 1930s in the island of Lewis, you really did pray for God to provide your next meal because you weren't sure and you didn't want it to be herring again. Um, And it, you know, I think for many of us, that's not the case. Uh, In a report in Britain this week, is all about how we stop obesity and, and, and so on. And I think that we're maybe a little bit complacent about all the good things that we receive and we need to, to learn to express our thankfulness to God for the fruitfulness of the earth that we live in. A couple of weeks ago, the shoebox appeal we had, you saw a wee video clip of people in, poorer people in uh, Eastern Europe in Romania and uh, Ukraine and how delighted those kids were. Now imagine your kids getting this for Christmas, a shoebox with a woolly hat and a toothbrush in it. You know, they couldn't be complaining. I'll give you the opposite of that. There's an extraordinary YouTube clip of a 17-year-old kid in the US who just get given a new car by his parents, you know, blindfold, the whole thing, come outside and he sees the car and he goes, you have got to be kidding me. You are kidding me. And he gets a baseball bat and he starts smashing it up because the car's not what he would like and his friends would laugh at it. And you look at that and you look, you just think, you spoiled brat. If I believed in capital punishment, you're the reason. You know, you just, it's just absolutely horrific. You know, and then you see these wee kids who, who've got nothing and you give them stuff that, that we would throw in the bin sometimes and you think... Wow, what's the difference in attitude? Well, I think sometimes we need to think about how we are Um, in the passage that we look at. Let's just look at the first bit here. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. As we go on through the passage, Jesus is going to talk about worrying and not worrying. And uh, there's uh, just 
dreadful song. And the minute I thought of it, it went round in my head. And it's been going round in my head for the past two days. Hakuna Matata, what a wonderful phrase. Hakuna Matata, ain't no passing craze. It means no worries for the rest of your days. It's our problem-free philosophy, Hakuna Matata. The song's kind of spoiled when you realize it's about a warthog who has wind problems. But um, he's not going to worry about that, apparently. No worries. How is that even possible? How is it possible to be a thankful person? Because an unthankful child is dreadful, of course, an unthankful guest. Imagine if uh, you invite someone to your home and you don't invite them for the thanks, but that you give them a meal and they share your hospitality and they go away and not one word, not one word. Do you know it's lovely sometimes when someone just sends you a wee card saying, thank you for having us for a meal. We really appreciate it. It's really nice when uh, that happens. But an unthankful human being, a moaning mini, as uh, I think Mrs. Thatcher once said, uh, it's, you know, you get coffee. You're just the kind of person who's always complaining about absolutely everything. Constant dissatisfaction, jealous, miserable. And in our culture, I think our culture is largely designed for that. Why? Because it's advertising. Advertising culture is designed to stop us being thankful. If you're thankful and content, you don't need to buy anything else, do you? So the whole point of advertising is to make you unthankful and discontent. Ha, look at that phone you've got. It's out of date. It's rubbish. Yeah, you don't want a phone like that. Look at that car. Look at those clothes. They're so old and so old-fashioned. We live in a culture which thrives on a consumerist attitude, which thrives on people not being satisfied. I want to look at this then in the concept of thanksgiving and this big picture, big picture on which my life is painted and your life is painted. The most radical of messages This Matthew 6 is a series of short sayings that Christ uh, had together, a more sustained argument, I think, on the theme of possessions as well. Now, I don't think Jesus, when we look at this passage, Jesus is not saying you should never have private possessions. I don't think he's saying you should never have insurance or so on, but I think he's giving us some basic principles which would enable us to live before God as thankful people. Firstly, this first principle in the verses we have Real treasure is vital. Materialism is really stupidity. It's a wrong perspective. Moth and rust destroy. They rust and they decay. If you um, go up to, since we're speaking of farms, if you go up to... Crombie Park, there's an old farm on the edge of it, there's just part of it, and they've left some machinery out, and it just rusts. It's now useless. It rusts. You go to old farms where, where the machinery has not been used, and it rusts, or basically go into my garden shed and see some of the tools there. Um, they've rusted, because <laughs> they're not used all that much. Um, but they rust. It's a wrong, or they're stolen. Thieves break in and steal. Paul says to the Corinthians, we brought nothing into this world and we will take nothing out of it. 
And so Jesus says, don't store up treasure that's going to rust or treasure that can be stolen. Store up treasure that will last forever. What are these treasures that are in heaven? Well, we know in heaven there'll be no sin, no pain, no suffering. There'll be pure love. There'll be work without tiredness. There'll be no exams, uh, no broken relationships. There'll be real worship, no pretense, and the real presence of God. So what are we looking for? I think in this life, we look for some of those things. We look for what we value. And Thanksgiving is really about what we really, really value. What is valuable in your life? What would you pay for? What do you not want to do without? I think that's how you assess your treasures. But look at your treasures now. Just think, just think for a moment. What's the things that you value right now? What will they be worth in five years' time? And will you value them the same in five years' time? And then in 10 years' time? And then in 50 years' time? And then in 100 billion trillion years' time? What value will any of it have? If you're not a Christian, the answer is nothing. It's of no value whatsoever. You have nothing of value, and you have nothing that's going to last. Even your reputation and your memory and so on, it's not going to last. It will be erased just as your Facebook page can be erased. What has great value? You may have a piece of jewelry, a ring, gold, and it's gold is designed to last, but it doesn't last forever. Is the ring more valuable than the Bible that you just gave to one of your friends or the money you gave to help the poor? And Jesus really wants us to think about where we place our values. He says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. We retranslate that to read, where our heart is, there our treasure is. I love Jesus, so my heart's in heaven. No, Jesus doesn't say that. He says, where's your treasure? What do you think about? What do you dream about? What are your ambitions? We always move towards the object that we want. We want a way maybe to make money, a way to get friends, a way to have children, a way to be in relationship, a way to become famous. If these are our aims and our ambitions, and these are our ultimate goals, then we may use Christ, but ultimately Christ will get in the way. Colossians 3 verse 1, Paul says, since then you have been raised with Christ, Set your heart on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. See, here's the paradox. If you have your mind set on things above, you will appreciate these things far more. If you're focused on yourself and what you can get here and now, stuff that you don't particularly value, that you just take for granted, you don't care about. Paul says to Timothy, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so they may take hold of the life that is truly life. That fantastic passage. He's saying... Don't put your money into investments and lay up treasure for the future in that sense. He's saying, 
God provides you everything richly for your enjoyment, so use it to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. It's not the having of stuff that's the problem. It's the hoarding of stuff and the keeping of stuff to yourself. It's the selfishness and the self-absorption that is the problem. The story that Max told us of the little boy who wanted to go buy bread and give it away and even wanted to share his bike. It's an, you know, people look at it and listen to a story like that and they say, oh, that's, that's sweet and that's cute. And we can understand a child doing it because it's a childish attitude. But also, I think it's an attitude which Christians should develop and should have. So Jesus is saying, look, there's... Uh, two treasures, and you've got to get the right treasure. You look, look at the right understanding of that. He then talks about bad vision. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now, how does that fit? I mean, it's not exactly a logical connection. He's, it doesn't appear to be. He's saying, here's treasure in heaven, here's treasure on earth. You've got to go for the treasure in heaven. And then he says, he starts talking about the eye. Well, what he's saying is, it does connect because he's saying it's how you see things. The eye is the lamp of the body. Through your eye, light enters into the body. It finds, enables the body to find its way. Well, what Jesus is doing here is a very subtle wordplay. Good here equals single. It, and it also includes the idea of generous, bad, is stingy and jealous. See, the good eye is the one that's fixed on God. You're then full of light. And you're generous. You're the light of the world. The bad eye is the person who doesn't, is not fixed on God, but is fixed on their bank account, fixed on their car, fixed on their house, fixed on their material possessions. And God is in the periphery. God is a blur at the side. And that person de facto becomes stingy and jealous. The main point that Jesus is making is of spiritual vision. So he then goes on. Two masters, the same point. No one can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one and love the other. Or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now money is probably not a good translation there. Because it doesn't mean what we would just call cash, basically. It's the Aramaic word mammon. And mammon carries the idea not just of cash, but material possessions full stop. Well, what is Jesus saying? He's saying you cannot serve both God and money. Now people say, wait a minute, I'm, let's, let's get this straight. I go to work in the morning and I go to work for money. Some of you, I hope, go to work for more than that because you actually enjoy your jobs and you want to serve people and so on. But some of you may be stuck, uh, and all of us do it for money. Uh, very few of us are in a position where we can afford to work uh, without being paid for it. And who of us, if someone came to us and said, I will quadruple your pay, might go, okay, I feel a calling uh, to go that direction. Uh, most of us would be tempted uh, in that direction, I think. But this job that you're in, what will you do when you finish? 
You cannot serve both money and Christ. You can't really have two jobs. Now, we live in a culture where some people do try and have two jobs or maybe they might have two part-time jobs or whatever. But Jesus is just simply telling us, you either live for me or you live for the things that money can buy. The context here is of a society where slavery was normal. And no slave in that society could be the property of two owners. And Jesus is saying, you can't divide yourself between God and money. And that's a very important thing, even in terms of how we think. Some people say, you know, I'm here in church today, and this is me worshiping God, and this is me giving time to God, and I might make it tonight, I might not, we'll see how things go, I might need to chill out. But the rest of the week, what are you doing? Well, according to Jesus, you're serving God. Or if you're not, even being here, you're not serving God. You're playing a game. So the job that you have, whatever job it is, doesn't have to be a spiritual job because there's no such thing. It, it, it does have to be that whatever you do, you do for Christ. It's a wholehearted devotion he looks for. He's, he's, Christ is saying you choose between me or my creation. Money is a useful tool, but you cannot serve it. Uh, it's like everything that we've got. They're useful tools, but you cannot serve them. Your laptop may be a useful tool, but you cannot serve it. You do not. Your car is a useful tool, but it gets you places. You don't live for it. Your house is a useful thing, but you don't live for it. Martin, Matthew, Matthew Henry, um, he was robbed one time. Matthew Henry was one of the great Puritan commentators, uh, and he, he wrote this once, a prayer after he was robbed. Lord, I thank you that I've never been robbed before. That although they took my money, they spared my life. Although they took everything, it wasn't very much. And that it was I who was robbed and not I who robbed. The point is this, that we are meant to have a loose attitude towards the material things of this world. And that's why the next part of this passage is very important because Jesus then goes on and that's why I didn't just go it straight in here to say, therefore, because of this, because you can't serve two masters, because your eye has to have a single purpose, because you have to store up treasure for yourselves in heaven, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the sea, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you as well. What about our attitudes then to the gifts that God gives us to food and clothing? Don Carson I just want to share this with you. I found this really helpful, actually. He speaks about different attitudes that different people have. And you may find yourself 
fitting into one of these descriptions that he gives. Um, You may not, but he talks about someone who's careful and cheerful and happy-go-lucky, rarely gets anything done or rarely gets anywhere on time. Doesn't worry about the next five minutes, never mind tomorrow. Life's a joke. He's a nice guy. He does not get bitter, but he doesn't take any responsibility. And he is insensitive to the needs of others and couldn't care that millions of people are lost and he's lazy. Martin Luther says this, God wants nothing to do with the lazy, gluttonous bellies who are neither concerned nor busy. They act as if they just had to sit and wait for him to drop a roasted goose into their mouth. Certain Lutherism there, but I love that idea. You know, they're just lying there going, go on, a goose, give me a goose, uh, all there. Well, I, th- listen, there are plenty of people like that. You go, yeah, no worries. Don't worry about a thing. Hey, chill, man, I'm not worried. Yeah, but you're lazy. You're fat-bellied, gluttonous, slovenly, couldn't care to hoots about people. It's the fact that you're not worried and you're chilled out. It's not something to be commended about. Or, says Carson, there's the other type of person who's hyper-responsible. Every grief and every burden is taken seriously. They don't just worry about tomorrow. They've got the next 50 years worries all in line. Every single thing. What will happen if? What will happen if? What will happen if? Every bit of bad news becomes a source of anxiety. Oh, what if the Chinese... What if the Chinese take over? What if the Muslims take over? What if this happens in my work? I heard that somebody was sick. What if they've got this kind of illness that will come to me? And so on and so on and so on. And there are people who worry in that way. Hyper-responsible, hyper-caring, hyper-efficient. Third, says Carson, you get someone like a balanced and sane young Christian, he says, who's uh, integrity and disciplined hard work. He's a married young guy with two children doing his doctorate. And then he wakes one night to find his wife can't speak. And a brain tumor is discovered. And she's given three years to live. Carson asks, these three people, how do you think they're going to react to these same words of Jesus? The first is going to be happy. Don't worry. Don't worry. Hakuna Matata. Don't worry about a thing. Everything's going to be all right. He always does just enough to pass the course. Why worry? The second the hyper-responsible person feel rebuked. He worries about the sermon. He begins to worry about worry. And it's just, the cycle always continues. The third is bitter. He sneers that the preacher should watch his own wife dying before he speaks about not worrying. And he can list a whole lot of other things to worry about. The first needs to hear about self-discipline, self-sacrifice, and hard work. The second needs to hear more about God's providence and self-centeredness. And the third needs to have someone weep with them. Worry, you see, affects us all in different ways because of our circumstances and our personalities. There's much more that could be said, but suffice it for me to say just now that there's a worry that is essential, a concern to be faithful to Jesus, concern about sin, The Christian life is not just one of endless leaping around, jumping for joy, but genuine heartfelt concern about sin and how it impacts and affects us. But there is also a wrong kind of worry. Martha says, Jesus, you are concerned about many things, but only one is necessary. And we need to learn to cast all our cares on him because he cares for us. 
The passage we've just read tells us that God cares for all his creatures and that therefore we are not to worry, not, because, doesn't, not that we are not to make reasonable provision for ourselves and our families. God provides food for the birds, but they still have to go look for it. He's not saying give up farming or give up shopping. He's saying you need to be taught by the birds. Again, Luther, who's just superb on this. You see, he says, he is making the birds our schoolmasters and teachers. It is a great and abiding disgrace to us that in the gospel, a helpless sparrow should become a theologian and a preacher to the wisest of men. Whenever you listen to a nightingale, therefore, you are listening to an excellent preacher. It is as if she were saying, I prefer to be in the Lord's kitchen. He has made heaven and earth, and he himself is the cook and the host. Every day he feeds and nourishes innumerable little birds out of his hands. See, the basis of our confidence, unlike the anxiety of the pagans, is that we recognize God as our heavenly father. Let me just do a little bit of philosophy with you just to help you understand the background, why this is important. There are three ways that you can look at the universe in which you live. The open universe. If there are gods, we affect them, they affect us, they're unpredictable. Um, This is a a pre-science world, if you like. It's a world which is very superstitious. It's a world which relies on horoscopes. It's a primitive world. That's not the world I think that most of us live in, but maybe some do. Maybe some of you are superstitious people. Maybe you see cause and effect in everything and just chaos all around, and you think, if only I do this. I mean, what are you doing when you go touch wood? What are you saying? You know, how many of you would walk under a ladder? Um, I do it deliberately just to prove that I'm sound, but that's crazy. That's just as daft as not walking under it. Who of you is going to refuse an address because it's number 13? Don't say that we're not superstitious. We've got superstitious all over the place. And you say, oh, well, in the modern age, yeah, right. So what's feng shui about? Is there any science to it? Does it really matter which direction your toilet is facing so that your yin and yang or whatever it is, is makes you feel good? You seriously going to ask a designer in your house to put the toilet in a particular place so that there can be better vibes and hang purple crystals so that you'll get in touch with your chi or chai or whatever it is? I, I mean, sorry. Uh, it, it, I, seriously, there are people who actually worry about that stuff. I've got to have the right clothes. I've got to get the right tone. I've got to get the right, you know. No, that's the open universe, which is insane, I think. There's the closed universe. Everything lies within the circle. This is the atheistic worldview, mechanistic and atheistic. There's only matter, energy, and space. Everything can be explained by mechanistic principles of cause and effect. And therefore, actually, nothing has real value, and there's nothing that you can really do. In one sense, it's almost all predetermined. just can't be helped. It's just the way things are. Or there's the controlled universe, which I think is the biblical view, and actually, I think, the better philosophic and scientific view. Every created thing is within the circle. There's a circle, and every created thing is within that circle. But outside the circle is God. Or at least, not just outside, he's above and inside the circle. He's not the creation. No part of the system operates independently. It's in God that we live and move and have our being. It's in Christ that all things hold together. It's Christ who sustains all things by his powerful word. 
This is not the view of the world that says, a deistic view which says God made the world, wound it up like a clock, backed off and just let people get on with it. It's not that. There's more to it. It's not the view of the world that says, well, God's in there doing everything and science and the laws have nothing to do with it. It's just saying simply that God works in and through things. So I do look at a bird and I don't think, my, isn't it incredible and how wonderful that this bird has evolved in this way? I think, isn't it incredible and wonderful that God has made a world in which this bird can evolve in this way and can adapt in this way? I think if you see a world in which God is in it and also outside of it, it helps you because you realize that when we seek God first and his kingdom, we can then be ambitious for God. We can search, we can seek, seek first his kingdom and all these things will be added to you. The language of seeking, by the way, is interesting. There's, there's just so much in that. All human beings are seekers and that's why seeking for material goods is so unproductive and unnecessary and cheapens you as a human being. If you've put your value in getting a Porsche and you get a Porsche, what does that make you feel like? It's cheap. If you put your value in saying, oh, if only I've got to have a relationship and it's got to be any kind of relationship, I've just got to have a relationship and you cheapen yourself and you prostitute yourself, what does that make you as a human being? But if you seek God's kingdom first, give your allegiance to him first as king, then righteousness follows as a consequence of that and life and the meaning of life and the way of life follows from that. Let me deal with just with one slight problem here. What if all our needs are not met? What if there's a lack of faith? Is Jesus here teaching health and wealth? Come to me and you'll get everything. No. I think what Jesus says is summarized in this way. Don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. I am not, says Paul, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. I just wonder if you're content. I mean, really content really at peace, not fake, not pretend, not chemically induced, but just content. And you're probably going to be one of these people, many of us will say, almost, I would be, if I got that job, I would be, if my husband was like this, I would be, if I had a husband or if I had a wife, I would be, if my children, I would be, if that illness, I would be, and we keep, we just, just round the corner, lies contentment and for the rest of your life it will always be just around the corner because it won't ever be enough the secret of being content whether well-fed or hungry is to look to Christ I think that helps us as well in terms of how we live together in community it's a wonderful emperor called Emperor Julian the Apostate I'm sure he didn't give that name to himself he said this we ought to be ashamed not a beggar is to be found among the Jews. And these godless Galileans, he's referring to the Christians, feed not only their own people, but ours as well. Whereas our people receive no assistance whatsoever from us. 
We must work to support others. We need to work, he went on. But he was looking at the Christians and he was saying, this is what Christians do. Well, why? Why do we work to support other people who are in need? Because we're content. We're content with what God has given us. We're ambitious in a good way. Not my comfort, not my status, not my power. But ambitious for God. I find it ironic that our ambitions for ourselves we have as being so big and our ambitions for God and his kingdom are so tiny. And it should be the other way round. We should be eager to develop our gifts, widen our opportunities, do our best for the glory of God. To be the best that we can be. But the best that we can be is for the glory of God, not for our own glory. Let me put it, come back full circle to how we came into all of this. Don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. What are you thankful for? We're going to sing a song just in a moment about my heart is filled with thankfulness. Well, I think we should be thankful for the harvest. Some of the most incredible experiences for me as a young boy growing up, a teenager, was when I did work on harvests and... um, It was just an incredible feeling at the end of the harvest to stand on a pile of grain that was in a dryer or in a barn ready to be put into the dryer. And you just sat on the top of it and you just sifted it through your hands. And it was just something wonderful. (coughs) Thankful for the harvest. Well, please, when you sit down for your food at lunchtime, I know it's now, but we'll, we'll let you go soon. But now, right? Be genuinely thankful for it. Imagine that you actually didn't have it. Be genuinely thankful for what God has given to you. Um, Ambrosia creamed rice, okay? Yuck. Okay, serve it to me, I will eat it. Um, Angel of the light, I won't. But ambrosia creamed rice, seriously, as a food? Who invented that? Well, I was in... Uh, as some of you know, I was in hospital very seriously ill for a while, and I was several weeks, n- dreadful words, nil by mouth. Right? I thank the Lord for the mouth. Honestly, it's a great way of eating food. Other ways don't, aren't so attractive. Um, anyway, nil by mouth, nil by mouth, nil by mouth. And I was just desperate for food, real food. You know, the guy in the bed over from me eating fruit. Oh, could kill you. You know, give me, I want something by mouth. And eventually came the glorious day when they said, we are going to give you something by mouth. And it was a teaspoon of ambrosia creamed rice. <laughs> Do you know this? I have never in my life tasted anything so good. It was just absolutely wonderful. The next day it was half a pot. We are soon on at the bacon sandwiches, but it was just, you know, the ambrosia cream rice has been left behind, but you're just enormously thankful and grateful for it. You know, we need to be thankful to God for all the gifts he has given to us. Yes, there are things that hurt and there are real pains and there are real struggles and I'm not taken away from those. But we need to be thankful for the good things that we receive and to realize that the bad things, they are going. Um, I wanted to share this particular quote with you from John Flavel because it concerns, for me, a situation. I was thinking about something. You don't need 
to know what it was, but I was worried about it and thinking, I want this to happen, and what if this doesn't happen, and what if that does You know, and to be honest, it was getting to a stage that was keeping me asleep at night. And then I read this from Favelle. It was really helpful. It's in, those of you who are reading his book on Providence, that, that whole book really helped me. He says this, Labor to work into your hearts a deep and fixed sense of the infinite wisdom of God and your own folly and ignorance. See, you've got to get this into your heart. This is what you've got to feel. God is deep, you know, and he knows far more than us. This will make resignation easy to you. Now, Flavel used resignation in a way that we probably wouldn't understand. Resignation is when you say, you know this, I'm not going to try and get this myself anymore. I am really going to hand this over to God. I am, I'm giving up trying to work this situation out, trying to manipulate it, trying to, I'm just going to give it to God. And this is what Flavel calls resignation. Whatsoever the Lord does by, is by counsel. His understanding is infinite. His thoughts are very deep. So he's basically saying, look, God knows what he's doing. But as for man, yea, the wisest among men, how little does his understanding penetrate the works and designs of providence? In other words, God is saying, you're really worried about this, but you only know that little bit. I know the whole picture. You know that little bit. And providence is the things that happen to you. And you've just seen this, this, and this, and you've understood it in this way. But if you could see the bigger picture, you would realize how all things are working together. And how oft, says Flavel, are we acknowledging that if providence had not seen with better eyes than ours and looked further than we did, we had precipitated ourselves into a thousand mischiefs, which by its wisdom and care we have escaped. In other words, what Flavel is saying is thank the Lord that we're not God and that God doesn't let us choose our own way all the time because we would inevitably choose a way that ends up with disaster. And what God uses to guide us is not so much angels and flashing visions, but providence. Things that prevent us doing things or things that encourage us in another way. And that's what Jesus is saying. God knows, God cares, God works through ordinary means. We need to come to know that God. The trouble with too many Christians today is they look at the the potatoes and the bread and they go, yeah, right, I want to see miracles. And they don't understand that providence is a miracle. It's a wonder. It's a wonder that you're breathing. It's a wonder that you are alive. If you're not a Christian, your only way of understanding this is coming to know the Father. And you come to know the Father through Jesus. We see Christ and his providence in everything. And this really is the end. What then? We read this a little bit already. What shall we say in response to this? Romans 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? He's going to give us everything, right? That's what it says. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died, more than that who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. So that's great, isn't it? God is going to work for us. God is interceding for us. He's going to give us everything. It sounds wonderful. And then this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Again, it's wonderful, isn't it? But this is the stunning bit. And we know this so well, so many of us. We don't realize how stunning this is. Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Do you understand what's being said there? God in his providence and grace and love in Christ gives you everything. That doesn't mean that you'll never have famine, you'll never have trouble, and you'll never have persecution, and you'll never have sword. 
it means that through all of that, Christ is with you. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. These gifts are tokens of God's love. These tokens can be taken away, but the love can never be taken away. Never mistake the tokens for the love. Never mistake the tokens for the love. And sometimes you will find that in the midst of the deepest pit where so many of the tokens have been removed, the reality of the love of Christ is something that overwhelms you so that even if you are offered the finest wine and the greatest food and the most money and gold in the world, you would just simply say, no thanks. I've got something much, much better. And if God has to drag you through the providence of suffering in order to get you there, it is better that that happens, that you never experience and know that at all. It's not fair, some people say. It's like whatever happens to the Christian, you're saying they always win. You pray for healing. They're healed, they win. You pray for healing. They're not healed, they die, they win. Aha, that's Christianity. That's what Christ has done for us. That's why we give thanks. That's why it's wonderful to belong to Jesus. And that's why I, in my stupidity, and you also have to learn this lesson. Don't worry about a thing. Don't lie awake at night thinking, how can I do this? How can I plan this? How can I sort this? How can I fix this? Your theme is not Coldplay fix you. Because maybe you ain't going to be fixed. Your theme is simply that you trust entirely and totally that God will work all things for the good of those who love him. And that dream you had, that ambition you had, that desire you had, there will come a time, maybe it might be in eternity, where you will look and you will go, oh, wow, now I see. Now I see this picture. Now I understand. I just didn't know. And the only way that you can live is not by not knowing your whole future and how everything fits in. The only way that you can live is by knowing that Christ holds your future and that he is beautiful and lovely and all-powerful and he will never, ever let you go. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the way that it's so contemporary to us because Human beings have not changed. Thank you that you know our hearts and the deceitfulness and the wickedness and the materialism and the greed and the self-righteousness and the pride and the way we try and sort things out. And you look at us and you tell us not to. But to seek first your kingdom, your righteousness, to seek you. Grant that we would do so. And those of us, O oh Lord, who are struggling with pain, and those of us who are struggling with relationships and those of us who have many fears and worries, those of us who have financial concerns and concerns about work, concerns about family, Lord, help us to take our burdens and to cast them on you. And help us to know that just as you have clothed the trees around us just now in these glorious autumn colors, 
so you will clothe us in your righteousness and you will provide us with far more than we can imagine. We thank you that you are a gracious and generous God and that along with Christ, you graciously give us all things so that even in deprivation, we may know your riches in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.